0: And if you have a Bible with you today, turn with me to James chapter 4, towards the end of the New Testament, a small little letter, James, and we're in the fourth chapter. As we've all heard, I'm sure, the Bible is year after year the single most sold book in the world. However, the single most sold copyrighted book every year, at least in the last few decades, has been the Guinness Book of World Records. The Guinness family have been making beer since the mid-1700s. They got in the record-keeping business in the 1950s. I've often wondered what the connection might be between beer and records, if there's any connection at all, and it turns out that there is a connection. I stumbled onto one a few weeks ago And I've been looking for the great opportunity to tell you about it, (laughs) and so here we are. The story goes that the manager of Guinness Breweries, a man named Hugh Beaver, once had a spirited and rather long-lasting debate with a friend as to what was the fastest game bird in Europe. And neither man could find proof for his differing opinion, no matter how hard they tried. Mr. Beaver was familiar with the experience of unresolved disputes. Unresolved disputes were quite common among the men in Ireland's pubs. So Beaver had the idea of the Guinness Company cataloging and maintaining records as a way to maintain peace in pubs. There it is. He knew well that not all disputes, and gentlemanly sometimes men do not agree to disagree, uh, especially when intoxicated. It was an effort to maintain peace that the Guinness Book of World Records was, was born. So now, thanks to Hugh Beaver back in the 1950s, there are no longer any fights or disagreements in pubs or bars. Well, of course, that's not true, is it? A certain record may now be easily found on the Guinness website, but there are indeed still quarrels and fights, not just in bars but outside of them, in homes, in schools, on the school grounds, in workplaces, in city streets, and on the Senate floor. It's a good thing that the church doesn't have any disagreements, fights, tensions divisions is that right i have in my study a pretty terrible book called great church fights it tells stories of deacons meetings that ended in brawls in members meetings where a gun was pulled on someone those are extreme examples of course and i think whoever compiled these stories compiled it for a very sad joke um But there are fights, dissensions, divisions, tensions, departures in churches of all kind, and these come in various shades and severity. Even in the Philippian church in the first century, famous for its love for in partnership with the apostle Paul, they had spats. In chapter 4 of his letter, Paul urged two ladies Iodia and Syntyche to get along in the Lord, and he called on an unnamed brother to help them get along in the Lord. And that's all we know about this spat. It was well known enough for Paul to address it publicly. It was enough of a big deal for Paul to spend about 2% of his letter addressing it. It was complex enough for these ladies to need help. It was mysterious enough that or long-lasting enough that it no longer had a label attached to it. And yet it was simple enough for the Apostle Paul to just exhort, get along in the Lord. But where do these things come from? Why do they begin? How do they begin? Well, those are the questions that James asks and answers in his letter to the scattered churches outside Jerusalem. In chapter 4 of his letter, let's turn there, verses 1 through 10, we'll see him deal with quarrels and fights. What, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. and he will exalt you." That's God's word for us this morning. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you might realize by now how much James has been going on, on and off, but mostly on and going on about conflict and speech. Let's just look back. Chapter 1, verse 26 in our Bibles, there is the first time it's mentioned where James says that pure religion includes this, bridling the tongue, controlling the tongue. From there, he launches in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, into a whole thing about partiality. What do you say when a rich man comes into the church? What do you say when a poor man comes into the church? Are there divisions in the church because of what you're saying and who you're favoring? Is there conflict? And then in chapter 3, verses 1 and following, we find his longest treatment on the destructive power of the tongue and the need to bridle it, the need to use the tongue to bless and to not curse or destroy. And then just last week, at the end of chapter 3, we read about the wisdom that comes from above. And that wisdom, verse 17 says, is pure and peaceable. Gentle and reasonable. And the chapter ends on this happy note. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So it would seem that James' main reason to distinguish between wisdom from God and wisdom of this earth was really to show the different fruits that each would produce in relationships. The wisdom of the world is rooted in, verse 16 says, jealousy and selfish ambition, and from that comes discord and every evil thing. But the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So now in chapter 4, James goes back to focusing on the absence of peace. He gives us some diagnostics for how and why conflict happens, and how it happens in a church. Notice that's his audience, the church. He's been writing to brothers and sisters, or even beloved brothers. He's been writing to those saints that are spread out outside of Jerusalem because of persecution. And so when he comes to chapter four and asks what causes fights among you, he's talking to Christians in their communities of faith. What that means then is that what follows in James 4 may give some explanation for why actual wars happen between nations or wars rise up within nations. It gives some explanation for why people murder, why they steal. James 4 may even give some explanation about why people divorce. Or even the nastiness that happens on a campaign trail. But James's main concern is to get to the bottom of conflict in a church. And as he does so, warning, he turns up the heat. He comes to his hottest rebukes thus far in the letter. I find it painful to read. I found it painful to prepare this week. I find it painful to preach to you today. It is a heavy word that James has for us. So like a band-aid that needs to come off, let's quit stalling and get on with it. We see first the source of conflicts. The source of conflicts in verse 1 through this double question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions Are at war within you? You see, the wars among you, he says, are because of a war within you. Yes, you. I'm talking to you, James would say. What causes fights? You do. Now, if we use the whole of Scripture, we can find several qualifications to what James is saying here. For instance, in Romans 12, we read, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all people, implying you can't be at peace with everyone if they won't let you or agree to it. We could think of Paul and Barnabas, two godly missionaries who, in Acts chapter 15, had a sharp disagreement among them, and they parted ways in their mission endeavors. And the breach in the relationship never seems to have been repaired. We could think of how in Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul recounts that he confronted to the face the Apostle Peter for his hypocrisy, his inconsistencies. He did that publicly, and apparently it was a good thing. Those are just a few examples where James 4, 1 doesn't exactly apply. Sometimes it is more the other person than it is you in a conflict. Sometimes someone is completely in the wrong and its right to confront them, even if they might respond with more quarreling. Sometimes the matter is complicated enough or has gone on long enough or is about a matter of Of gray area that it isn't just a matter of me apologizing or even repenting and moving on some things are more thorny than that so there are qualifications to what James says to you however I would like for the next half hour for you to try your best to ignore those qualifications that's an unusual request Usually we want the whole of Scripture to speak to us, and yet we want each distinct part of it to do its part. James doesn't offer us or remind us of those qualifications. Let me encourage you, put them out of mind. Don't go there. Don't pull up the exceptions and the qualifications and the complications of any fight or trial that you're in. Don't let them shield yourself from James's blunt force. James has the blunt force of an Old Testament prophet, and frankly, he isn't interested in your qualifications or the exceptions to what he has to say. He isn't apparently bothered by generalizations, so neither should we be. He isn't afraid to use his blunt instrument, so let him use it. If you dare, hear him out. Hear him out. What causes fights among you? Is it not your passions that are at war within you? James won't let us make excuses. He starts by assuming individual personal responsibility. He assumes the need for sinners to be self-suspicious when it comes to quarrel. So in any given situation, you might ask yourself, how did this happen? How did this fight break out? What went wrong? And you might be tempted to answer them. Always them. It's them. It's not me. It's them. Well, okay, it's mostly them. Therefore, I'll say it's them. (laughs) Or maybe we would say, it was a perfect storm. The circumstances... I have low blood sugar. I was fighting a headache that day. I had traffic on the way there. I, I lost my temper. But it was my fault. It was circumstances. Well, James won't let us go down any of those paths because he answers the question for us. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is implied. He says divisions take place in the church because individuals are divided within themselves. There's a war inside. We are not yet complete, according to James. This is apparently a big deal for James. The need to be complete and the problem of being divided within is a big deal for James. Let me just show you. Turn back to chapter one again in verse three. There he told us that trials and the steadfastness that they produce must have their full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In chapter 1, verse 17, he told us about God's gifts, and his gifts are perfect. They are complete because they come from a complete, perfect, undivided God, an unchanging God. James told us in verse 25 of chapter 1 about God's word being a perfect law. It's complete. Same word. Abraham's faith, chapter 2, verse 25, his faith was completed by his works. He was complete. And then chapter 3, verse 2, here he talks about a man who would bridle his tongue completely. A hypothetical person, I'm sure. Someone who completely bridles his tongue is a perfect man lacking nothing. We could go back and retrace our steps again with double-mindedness in mind, divisions in mind. Chapter 1, verse 8, don't be a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. Chapter 1, verse 16, don't be deceived. That's being too brained, too lifed. Don't be a hearer and not a doer. That's to be divided. Be a hearer and a doer. That's completeness. In chapter 2, remember he said, don't say that you have faith, but not have anything to show for it. That's divided life. Or in chapter 3, don't have a tongue that blesses and curses. These things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Don't be divided. Don't have a life we saw last week that intermingles wisdom from God and wisdom from the earth because that kind of inner dividedness will lead to a dividedness among God's people, the body. God doesn't want his church, his people, to be divided because He is bringing them forth, birthing them into a whole new creation, and they're the first fruits of it. That's what this letter is all about. So, back to our chapter today divisions in the church take place because individuals are divided within themselves. Are you headed towards completeness? Have you forgotten that that's the goal? Have you just gotten used to your dividedness? Are you comfortable with dividedness within? Dividedness in your soul, dividedness in your pursuits, dividedness in your passions, dividedness in your actions. It's a war. How goes the war, Christian? Christians have been rescued from the penalty of sin, somewhat from the power of sin, but not yet rescued from the presence of sin, not yet fully rescued from the practice of sin. Galatians 5 talks about this, this inner tension. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do the good things that he's put in you to do. It's not easy. It's a battle. D-Day has already come, and the war is as good as done. But V-Day, Victory Day, is not yet. The war isn't totally over. Our sin has been killed, but it's dying a slow death. In some days, it feels very much alive and even dangerous. We must put it to bed, put it to sleep, put it to death. We must say no to it. We must abstain from its temptations. Like Peter told his readers, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So that's where conflicts among Christians come from. Disputes, tensions, bitter quietness, quarrels, fights, divisions and departures, breaches, they all come from passions at war within us that win out over what God is making us to be and what God calls us to be and to do. That's the source of conflict. It's you. Secondly, the frustration of coveting. We see the frustration of coveting in verse 2 and 3. Verse 2 reads, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Here are these passions that verse 1 talked about being worked out. It's a desire to have. It's coveting. That may be coveting things, possessions, or things less tangible than that. It might be coveting status, or praise, popularity, success, having my way, being right, you honoring me, you deferring to me, you apologizing to me. When these things are sought and are not easily attained, the stakes can be raised and raised and raised and raised raised, all the way up to murder. Now James is probably not inferring that some in these churches had killed off other members of their churches. He's showing instead where these fights go where they lead. He's showing what's at root. James's brother, the Lord Jesus, taught us that hatred is murder in the heart. It's murder in the heart. So here is our explanation for real murders. It's hatred in the heart and it's self front and center. Murder is essentially saying that something is in your way. Something is threatening you in your wants, and it must go. This explains any quarrel, any fight that happens. Something is in my way. Something is against what I want. Something must stop. It must go. It must be put down. Fights come when passions are let loose. Fights come when our desires are frustrated, there is a frustration to coveting. Coveting, wanting what you don't have and think you deserve what someone else has. There's frustration to coveting partly because there's never really any full and lasting satisfaction even when we get what we covet. But also partly because it leads to quarrels. It leaves behind its trail a whole matrix and mess of broken relationships in frustrated times. Well, then James applies these frustrated desires to prayer. In verse 2, the second half, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Ask God, that is. He's saying that there are some things that you want and you don't pray to God about them, you don't pray to God for them because you know he would be against them. There's some things you want that you can't pray for or talk to him about because you know you want what's against his will and his ways. That's a scary reality. Is there anything like that in your life? Anything where you desire something but you can't and won't talk to God about it because you know what he would say if he would say something to you now this verse the second half of verse two that sentence there it's often used as a blanket statement or even as an invitation for Christians to pray about anything you have not because you ask not I'm sure I've said that to my kids before meaning well you should have asked for it I may have given it to you That's how God works. Sometimes we hitch this to what Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. But both James and Jesus need to be put in their proper context to understand what these short sentences mean. Yes, surely prayerlessness is a bad thing. Not asking God for anything is not good. Ask God. But James is not just encouraging prayer, let alone encouraging us to pray for anything we want, as if he would apply it like this in a Sunday morning sermon. Maybe you don't have one million dollars because you've never asked God for one million dollars. Maybe you don't have that Ferrari you want because you've never asked God for that Ferrari you want. Now that kind of hogwash is on the television by preachers who say that they're Christians, but this is some bad mojo. And James's next sentence makes it abundantly clear that that's not his intent with that phrase you have not because you ask not. Verse 3 says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So here James insists that there are some things we ask God for and we ask with the wrong reasons, the wrong motives, or for the wrong thing. And hence, God mercifully keeps it from us. He mercifully won't give it to us because we ask simply for ourselves, simply out of our passions. Have you ever thought about the fact that it's not only right, but wise, good for you to ask yourself about motivations and prayer requests. Why am I asking for this? I know I'm asking. I know I want what I'm asking. Why am I wanting what I'm asking? What's behind it? Are you willing to talk to God about your motives for prayer requests? Or is it just assumed you ask anything you want? God may or may not give it. Hopefully he will. Doesn't the Lord's prayer direct us in what to pray for, in what to prioritize? I was reading in either Matthew 6 or Luke 11 recently and seeing the, the Lord's prayer or really his model prayer. A series of Ps came to mind as I read it. I think the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray personally, our Father in heaven. He teaches us to pray praise God, hallowed be your name, or holy be your name. He teaches us to pray for God's plan. Your kingdom come, your will be done. He tells us to pray for provision, give us our daily bread, to pray for pardon, forgive us our sins, and to pray for protection, spiritual protection first and foremost, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Do you see how this prioritizes what we pray for? And it seems as though God's priorities, his kingdom, his will, are front and center. His name being hollowed or made holy in our lives is front and center. Brian Chapel, in his book, Praying Backwards, He helps us with some of this. He says that we usually end our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen. And that's not a bad thing to do. When we say, in Jesus' name, though, we're not sort of giving the the secret word at the door so that our prayers can answer. It's not just about access to God with our prayers when we say, in Jesus' name. We're also saying, For his name, by his name, in his name, yes, but for his name, for his glory, for his purposes, for his fame. That's how name is often used in the Bible. So Brian Chappell says that we end our prayers that way, but perhaps we should learn to begin our prayers with in Jesus' name whether explicitly or just in our minds, it'd be good for us to have the rest of our prayers shaped with this utmost priority that we are praying according to his name, for his name, for his fame, for his glory, for his purposes. He's the Lord. Now, all of that is good instruction from Jesus and Brian Chapel. But keep in mind that James here is not instructing us about prayer as much as he is rebuking us. He's pointing out what's wrong. If I can paraphrase James, I would say, do you want to know why there are fractures in your relationships? It's because you're saying, it's because you're not saying no to your sinful passions. People are getting in the way of what you want. You want what you want above what God wants, let alone what others need or even want. Sometimes you want things that you can't even talk to God about. Sometimes you ask God for things that you shouldn't ask Him for because it's all about you. There's no higher priority in your prayers than your comfort and your pleasure, and your ease. I think James would say, you want to know why you're frustrated in your life? It's because you want what God won't give you instead of trusting him for what he gives. He gives every perfect gift. Covetousness is mercifully frustrating. It's good that covetousness Never satisfies, but is desperately hungry and thirsty for more. You're frustrated because you're asking God for all the wrong things in all the wrong ways. Because your prayers are all about you. We saw first the source of conflict. Then the frustration of coveting. Now thirdly, there's the seriousness of compromise. Verses 4. And five, in warning again, James's rebuke is relentless and unremitting. And here he comes to his climax in verse four. You adulterous people. That is shocking. After addressing his readers as brothers and brothers and sisters and beloved brothers, now he calls them adulterous people. And this imagery and metaphor is a rich one. In God's Word goes back especially to the Old Testament prophets it's in Isaiah 54 that we're introduced to this marriage like relationship for your maker is your husband for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit that's the foundation for the metaphor of an adulterous life or person like in Jeremiah 3 God says, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you've been treacherous to me, O house of Israel. At times in the the prophets it gets graphic. It's treacherous language. Isaiah 57, you who burn with lust among the oaks and under every green tree on a high and lofty mountain, you've set your bed and there you went up to offer sacrifice. On and on Isaiah goes. It's in the New Testament as well. It carries through. So Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 can say to the Corinthian church, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Or perhaps most well-known is Ephesians 5. When Paul is teaching husbands and wives how to operate in the home together and with each other, He teaches that Jesus is a husband to the church. And so he's a model of husband-like love for these earthly marriages. There are many metaphors in Scripture for our status before God or our relationship to God. One is that we're adopted when we become a Christian, so we're his children. And another is that we've been betrothed or that even we're already married. We're His. We're to be His. So we're to be pure. We're to be single-hearted. We're to be devoted. We are to be undistracted like the way a godly man guards his eyes from glancing to and fro to lock onto any pretty woman it can find. No, he doesn't want to do that. He wants to be undistracted, and he wants to keep his gaze and all of his beholding for his wife. But when we flirt with sin, when we cozy up to it, When we partner up with sin, and when we lie with it, and live with it, sleep with it, well, you have lost your first love. You must come back. You're committing spiritual adultery. You are fooling around on God. You adulterous people. And then he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You may have wondered why James, back in chapter 2, bothered in passing to tell us that Abraham was God's friend. I wondered, well, now I know. Chapter 4, he's going to talk about friendship. Here, he's He's reminding us, be a friend to God, be a friend of God, like Abraham was. You cannot be both a friend of the world and a friend with God. Now, the world here, when he says the world, he doesn't mean just people in the world, because Jesus was a friend of sinners, a friend to sinners. What he means here by the world, Is earthly values earthly wisdom the ways of the world that are opposed to the ways of God the world is that system and ethic and lifestyle that is set against God you can't have it both ways Jesus said he who is not for me is against me he said no one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So which is it for you? Which way are you going to go? Which way have you gone? Are you still going that way? Whose will you be? Friendship with the world means that you might get some of what the world has to offer. Might. We'll see how much. We'll see how long. You don't remain friends with the world for eternity. The world's stuff stays in this world when people pass from it. So whatever the world can offer, it won't last. But friendship with God means that you will get what only God can give, forgiveness, righteousness, a whole new creation, a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a family of God, a new heaven and a new earth that cannot be taken away and will not fade. If you're his, if you've trusted in Jesus' blood and righteousness for the forgiveness of sins as your only hope, don't you feel his tug right now? Don't you feel him pulling on your life and your heart with his loving ownership? If you've gone astray, whether an inch or a mile, do you feel right now his loving fishing rod reeling you back? No one in this room is so righteous are so much at peace in their relationships that they shouldn't feel something of that, that tug, to come back, to get closer, to commune with him, to cut off my friendliness with worldly ways and my comfortableness with divided heart. Verse 5 says, Do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, that's a hard-to-understand verse. First, it's hard to understand because there is no Old Testament scripture that says this. Oftentimes, the New Testament says, as the scripture says, and then you can go back and find what it says. It's there. It's in the Old Testament. Well, this might be a summary of the whole Bible, As the scripture says everywhere, God is jealous. Or it might even be a paraphrase of the places where it says God is jealous. Exodus 20, Exodus 34, your God is a jealous God. But the verse is also hard to understand because it's hard to translate. I won't go into specifics. I'll cut to the chase and tell you that I think what James means is basically what the ESV has here. God yearns jealously over the human spirit, notice lowercase s, that he is made to dwell in us. In other words, God put that living spirit within you. You're not just a body, you're a soul, an eternal soul. That's his soul. It was made for him. It's made to relate to him. And he yearns jealously when that soul identifies with, and gets even owned temporarily by something else. He yearns jealously for the spirit that he's put within us. Our God is a jealous God. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Did you know that was one of God's revealed names to us? Jealous. A jealous husband you might think i know of some jealous husbands they're creeps they're jerks they own their wives they don't trust their wives they keep them cooped up won't let them go out a jealous husband's a bad thing no god is jealous in all the right ways none of the wrong ways he wants us though he wants us undistracted are you compromising Are you friendly with the world? Only you in God may know where you need to address some things. How often have we adulterated ourselves with our passions, with our pursuits, even with our prayers? How often have I put myself above others, even his sons and daughters? How often have I put myself above God and played the whore? What hope is there for me? What hope is there? I've got prayerlessness. I pray for the wrong things. I pray in the wrong ways. I want the wrong things. My heart is often divided in its affections, in its pursuits. This week I re-listened to an old Keith Green song that I often need to listen to when I feel like this. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are are cold I know what I ought to be alive to you and dead to me what can be done for an old heart like mine now Keith Green goes on to give some hope but let's let James finish that for us fourthly there's the pathway to cleansing Verse 6 and following, there's the pathway to cleansing. It's verse 8 that actually speaks of clean hands and pure hearts, but it's verse 6 that turns the corner. And what a wonderful but we find here, isn't it? A a great but of the Bible, where the bad news turns to good news. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace, more than what? He doesn't say. It's just more. It's more than we need, apparently. It's more than the problem requires. It's more than the accrued guilt from the previous verses. So it's grace not just to forgive, not just to cancel out, not just to cleanse, but to purify, to grow. Grace to endure. Grace to resist in the war. He gives grace to heal broken relationships. He gives grace for us to pursue peace and be peacemakers and see righteousness abound in relationships. He gives grace for us to pray better, to pray more, to want it, not just do it. He gives grace for us to want the right things and to think about stuff the way he does. He gives more grace. There's an old hymn written in the late 1800s based on that short sentence. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto man, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. A woman named Annie Flint wrote those words, and the backstory is illuminating. Her mom died at the age of three. Inexplicably, her father gave her to another family to be raised. She was powerfully converted to Jesus at a young age, graduated from high school, became a school teacher, but not long into her teaching career, she was met with intense arthritis. She was soon unable to walk and was bound to a wheelchair or bed. And it was about the same time that her two adoptive parents died within three months of each other. She and her younger sister Found themselves helpless, without money, but not without hope. It was probably around this time that she wrote the hymn I just quoted, He Giveth More Grace. She began making hand-decorated cards to sell. She would wrestle her crippled, arthritic hands to write out scripture or her own poetry or hymns upon these cards or in blank journals that she would sell. God provided, he used her. He not only provided, but he used these tools. He used her words. He still uses them today. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He giveth and giveth and giveth again. And that's the reason that it says in Proverbs 3, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, James will go on in the next few verses to intermingle more rebuke, can you believe it, with also hopeful pleas to turn back to the Lord all throughout. I think we'll leave the rest for next Sunday. James has certainly given us enough rebuke and he also has given us enough hope he gives grace how does he give grace he gives grace to the humble he's opposed to the proud he's against the proud do not be proud the problem is us own it it's worse than you thought but what's the hope Him, His grace, it's greater than your need. He gives, He gives, He gives, He gives more grace. And how do you get that grace? Well, you give up on your pride. You give up on yourself. You give up on everything that's false. You come to Him, and you come low, and you stay low. Get humble before Him. Confess your sin to him. Turn from your old ways. Look to his grace. See Jesus upon the cross as your payment, as your only hope. Call out to him for cleansing. Do you see how all of this is so applicable both to those of us in this room who are just now encountering this stuff for the first time. Perhaps today, for the first time, God has opened up your heart to you and you have seen the blackness that's inside. There's cleansing for you. Come to him. It's good that he's shown you your heart. Only he can give you a cure. But do you see how this is also, also applicable to those of us in this room who have experienced this whole experience before? We've gone this path before of being rebuked and returning to his grace, of getting a nudge and coming back quickly to his presence. 1 John 1 is applicable to those who haven't yet known the forgiveness of Jesus. And to those who know it, sometimes all too well. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How does he cleanse? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sins James doesn't give you a specific diagnosis or analysis of a conflict you've been through or are currently in you want that I know you want to know who's right you want to know how right you are James is useless for that He only tells us what's most important. That our greatest problem is us. The problem is great. Sin is great. It is a havoc wreaking problem, this sin. It breaks relationships. And it causes world wars. James insists that our only hope is God's grace. And the pathway to grace and in grace is the same, get low, come humble. And then, we could add Hebrews to this, let us then with confidence draw near. Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's thank him for that grace. Father, we pray for those in this room that don't know this grace and pray that you would, by your spirit, reveal it to them. Reveal to them that they need it. Draw them in. Cause them to see it. Not just see it, but to love it. To cling to it. For those in this room, Lord, who have drawn near to your throne of grace time and time and time again, help us to again humble ourselves before you and with confidence to draw near, to ask you for what we need and to trust you to give exactly what we need. We thank you for grace, what grace it is, and that you give more grace We stand in awe. Amen.